So we are getting close to the end of our Statement of Faith series. We are now at the second to the last article. Um, tonight uh, we'll be covering civil government. And what we'll do is um, tonight will be civil government. Next Sunday is going to be our um, kind of our Christmas white elephant kind of service. And I've asked uh, Gail and Brett to actually um, lead us in a devotional as well as um, share a report about their trip to Myanmar. Um, and then we'll and then from there we'll go into um, the festivities uh, for, for the rest of the night. Um, and then uh, the next meeting after that, um, I'll do the final lesson from a statement of faith, which is last things. And then um, then probably at the start of next year, we'll start to get into biblical counseling, um, which is uh, something I've been looking forward to. And I know many of you have been looking forward to um, as well. Um, but this is um, th- this is a good topic. Civil government. Uh, the um, the explanation that we have in our statement of faith is pretty short and concise. But I, I think there is much that's worth talking about here. This is. Um, this is really a, an area that um, many churches um, kind of disagree with one another. There's a lot of um, disagreement and, and tension in terms of what's the right amount of involvement. You know, at what point do we obey, we obey and disobey and all those kinds of things. But let's go ahead and uh, read what our statement of faith uh, says. And then we'll start to take a look at um, some of the verses that are listed here as well as some additional ones that, uh, that I have um, kind of uncovered myself. So um, the article says this, we believe that the civil government is of divine appointment for the interests and good order of human society, that government officers are to be prayed for, conscientiously honored and obeyed, except in things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord of the conscience, the coming prince of the kings of the earth. Um, and there is a, a number of verses uh, listed here. And I'll, I'll just say this. The, the second verse that's listed on our statement of faith is Second Samuel twenty three thirteen. When I look at that, I don't think that has anything to do with this topic. So I, I think that's a um, that that's a typo or something. So if um, any of you can figure out what uh, what that's actually referring to, let me know, and uh, we can get that uh, modified. I figured it was either First Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings, First uh, Chronicles, or Second Chronicles, but none of the none of those books matched, at least with those chapter and verses. Um, so I, I would say that that second verse um, doesn't seem to have anything to do with civil government. Uh, but let's uh, let's parse this out, um, this statement. We believe that civil government is of divine appointment. Okay, civil government is of divine appointment. Now, this was very clearly the case um, in the Old Testament times when, um, when there was the nation of Israel. It was essentially a theocracy. Um, they had God ultimately as their king, but they had appointed eventually a human king, um, starting with Saul and then David. Um, but uh, for today, we don't live in a theocratic um, environment. Uh, we can't say with... Um, any real certainty that our leaders are, are truly followers of, of Jesus Christ. So what, um, what argument or, or what uh, rationale would we come up with that the civil government is still of divine appointment if, it's, if they're not actually being led by people who are followers of Jesus Christ? Where would you guys go? God causes them to be appointed there. God causes them to be appointed, but Sarah, what were you going to say? Yeah. So our leaders are a part of God's plan. Yeah. It, yeah. For yeah. I, I would say that. Um, yeah. Even if you were just going off the Old Testament, um, God very clearly testifies to His sovereignty over the appointment of even Gentile rulers. Um, when uh, when Assyria and Babylon came, did they come outside of the control of God? No. No. God is actually the one that said, "I'm bringing them. Um, I'm bringing them to to take you out." And uh, even in the book of Habakkuk, and I've mentioned this before, but 
Habakkuk is lamenting the, the sin of Israel, saying, God, you need to do something about this people. And God says, I am going to do something about this people. I'm bringing the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans were some of the most uh, wicked people on the face of the planet. And Habakkuk was like, wait a second, they're, they're even worse than we are. And, uh, you know, God said, well, I'm going to use them to punish Israel, and then I'm going to turn around and punish them. Um, so, so God is absolutely so- sovereign. And even one of the um, sermons that I preached during the candidating process was um, 1 Kings 19. That's when Elijah, um, uh, Elijah was running away from Jezebel, if you remember that, and uh, went, um, t- took a j- long journey to Mount Horeb and uh, stood before God and said, look, I'm the only one that's essentially been zealous for you. They've all forsaken you. And uh, what does God reveal to, um, to Elijah? Let's take a look at it right now, just as a reminder. 1 Kings 19. First Kings 19, Elijah takes a, a very long trip to Horeb. And of course, we recognize Horeb is the mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments. Um, Horeb is the mountain where Moses saw the glory of God. And uh, throughout the Old Testament, um, there are only two people that are mentioned as going before God at Mount Horeb. And the first one was Moses. And the second one here is Elijah. Um, no, one is, no one else is ever mentioned as, as going up and communing with God um, at Horeb. Uh, but Elijah... Uh, we see in verse 10, uh, chapter 19, verse 10, 1 Kings 19, verse 10, Elijah says this, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the son of Israel have forsaken your covenant, uh, the, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Well, what's stunning about this statement is that this came after the victory um, of God over the prophets of Baal, the prior chapter. You know, and, uh, and somehow Elijah is now running away. And uh, even though it seemed like that they had repented, what we see from Elijah's statement is that, no, they haven't repented. In fact, they want to kill him. Um, and so he, he's running away. He's going before God. Verse 11, um, God brings about um, all these um, supernatural wonders. Um, says, behold, the Lord was passing by. Very similar to how the Lord passed by, by, sorry, passed by before Moses. The Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains, breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. So God caused all these supernatural wonders to happen, but this is not what Elijah was looking for. Um, Elijah already saw supernatural wonders at, the, at Mount Carmel when God brought down fire uh, upon the prophets of, of Baal. Um, and so the Lord asks him, what are you doing here at the end of verse 13? And verse 14, he repeats himself, I've been zeal- very zealous for the Lord. The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Um, they have torn down your altars, killed your prophets. I alone am left. They seek my life to take it away. And then from verses 15 um, through 18, this is where God establishes his absolute control. Um, said, he said, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel king over Aram. That's uh, modern day Syria. That, that is a Gentile nation. And it's very interesting that God here is saying that I am sovereign over even Gentile nations. You are going to appoint the next king of this Gentile nation of, um, uh, of Aram or Aram. Verse 16, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. Um, so despite the fact that they had the worst king and queen in their history up to this point in Ahab and Jezebel, and, um, and you know, Elijah's running out of fear for his life from Ahab and Jezebel, God is saying, no, I am sovereign even over their kingship and queenship um, over Israel. And so you're the Jehu, uh, son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And then he says, Elisha, 
son of Shaphat and Abel Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So while Elijah thought he was the only one that had been faithful, God is saying, you know what, I'm, a, I'm even sovereign over your ministry. And there will be someone who is going to replace you. Um, you're not that special, Elijah. You know, you're, you're not uh, that, that unique. Um, and verse 17, even sovereign over how they're each going to come to death. It shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So God saying there that I am sovereign over those who are still loyal to me. Um, Elisha, it's not just you. There are 7,000 um, in Israel that have not bowed their knees to, to Baal. Um, so we, we have um, the absolute sovereignty of God, not just over the leadership in Israel, but even the leadership over Gentile nations, um, even over um, Elijah's uh, ministry, and even over those who um, are, are faithful to, to the Lord God. Um, so we do see God's sovereignty in that. We do see God's sovereignty in that. Is, are there other verses that you would go to? Yes, Linda. Um, Jeremiah 29, when it talked about, um, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, and to all that are carried away captive, yeah. whom I have caused to be carried, whom I have caused to be carried That's right, away. that's right. He said, build houses, take wives, make peace. Yeah, yeah. So he basically commanded them to be subject to the government that was taking them captive. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. And, and, and God is very, he's very blunt about that. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not saying, oh, this these things are happening and I'm simply allowing it. He's saying, I caused it to happen. Right. Um, and, and if you read through the story of Daniel, right, um, Daniel is a, a perfect example of someone who um, was loyal um, to the Gentile leaders above him. And yet he was still more loyal to God, even more so than, than the Gentile leaders. Um, so that he, he's a great example as well as um, um, Adrach, um, Mishak, and Abednego, right? You know, yeah, those uh, those three. Okay, um, yeah, and uh, turn with me to uh, Romans um, thirteen. Romans thirteen. Romans thirteen. So th this is um, one of the first verses I would go to to establish the fact that our government, even though I wouldn't say they're a Christian government, they are still an arm of the Lord. They are still by divine appointment. And people misunderstand this because when I say that the government is by divine appointment, which is what our statement of faith says, and I agree with that 100%, when I say that our government is by divine appointment, they, they take that to mean that I say that this government is a Christian government. No, it's not a Christian government, um, but it is by divine appointment. Well, how is that? Well, we take a look at Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Um, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, that's a very important statement right there. There is no authority except that which is established by God. So any authority anywhere in the world, um, even, even evil dictators, um, are not allowed to be put in place unless God actually establishes them. Um, so every authority here, um, everyone is uh, established by God. In verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Um, now, today we've got uh, President Donald Trump as, as our president, um, and, and he claims to be Christian. I, you know, I, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but, you know, when we look at, for instance, our last president, President uh, Barack Obama, I can say for sure that he was not, um, not a believer, right? Um, and yet... Barack Obama is our president, I can say also with 100% certainty that he was appointed by God. 
and it was um, it was my it's my duty to um, submit to his leadership. It's my duty to submit to him as president and to honor him as as president. And so verse two, again, whoever resists that authority has opposed the ordinance of God. So anyone who um, who refuses the um, to submit to Barack Obama is actually refusing to submit to God. And very much the same with Donald Trump today. Yeah. Penny. That's right. So that's that's um, that's where we that's where we would draw the line. We would understand that leadership is established by God. But even um, as we you know, when you study the book of Daniel, you'll see that they were very they submitted, except when they were asked to do what is against God's will. And they said, we can't do that. You know, and that's when they ended up getting thrown into the furnace of fire. Um, amazing account, because three of them are getting thrown into the fire, but they see four people. And then they see fourth. That looks like the son of God. Yeah, it's it's amazing, like a like the son of God walking among them. I mean, it's amazing that those words came out of a Gentile ruler, um, looking down as he saw them. But yeah, that's that's uh, that's exactly it. Um, so verse two. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. They who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Verse three. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for you for good. Um, so here, you know, the word minister of God is being used, and that almost sounds like the same kind of minister as like a pastor or a preacher. But minister simply just means a servant. Um, doesn't mean that they literally believe in God, that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but essentially they're a servant. So they're a minister um, of God for you to do good. If you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. So when it says it does not bear the sword, what do you think that means? I mean, when it's, it talks about government bearing the sword, well, what kind of authority does government have? Well, yeah, I mean, they, they, can, they can punish us, and, and the sword is, is really a symbol of, of ultimately of even, even capital punishment, right? Um, the government has that, uh, that kind of authority. Now, they might exercise it in a way that's unjust, that that's going to, to be judged by God, um, whoever does that. Um, but I, I think it's very clear here. They even have that, um, that right and that ability. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And that language um, should uh, remind us very much of the words of Jesus Christ, right? When they challenged him about paying taxes to Caesar, right? Um, in fact, uh, let's, let's take a look at uh, that, um, that section of scripture as well. Uh, let's see here. Matthew, you said Matthew 22. That's right, Matthew 22, you're right. Yeah, Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. Matthew 22, uh, verse 15 reads, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Um, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now realize when the Pharisees were asking this question, they weren't truly interested in the answer. They just wanted to trap him. 
Um, because the idea is if they say, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, um, then they can say that, see, th this man honors someone above God. And if he simply says, um, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then they can go to the, uh, to the government and saying this man is trying to raise up an insurrection against the Roman government. So they weren't really interested in the answer. They were just trying to, you know, whatever, however he answered, they were going to trap him. And they were going to use that as a, as a reason to persecute him. But Jesus comes up with an answer that they did not expect. Verse 17, tell us then, um, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Verse 18, perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Now that word for testing, there, there's a couple of Greek words that can be used for testing. This word here that's uh, being used is, uh, is this idea that you're testing me with the intention that I would fail your test. Okay, this is the intention that you're, you're testing me in a way that you're, you're trying to get me to fail a test. And so that's what the testing is here. Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Verse 19, show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's and to God the things which are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed. So this was not the answer they were expecting. They did not anticipate this. They were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Now, what does that mean when he says, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, render to God what belongs to God? What do you guys think? How would you, how, how would you explain that to uh, someone asking you what that means? Sarah? Well, to the authorities, because they've been placed by God, yeah. we're to render respect and submit to the laws that are yeah. in place. And to God, we render worship and obedience and honor. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, so um, what Sarah was saying is that we, we render to the government um, um, what they're due um, since uh, God has appointed them. And, and to God, we, we render really our, our spiritual um, lives of worship, right? And, and really the whole point of, of looking at, uh, of look, pulling out that coin, you know, the, the image on that coin shows that Caesar is the one that's, that's in control from an earthly perspective. Said so that belongs to Caesar, you render that to Caesar. Okay, so the image of Caesar is on the coin, but the image of God is on your soul. Render to Caesar what's on that coin, render to God what's in your soul. Um, so you worship uh, God with your heart and your soul, but you give to Caesar um, what, what belongs to him as, as well. And uh, if you go a little bit earlier, Matthew 17. Matthew 17. Matthew 17, verse 24. Um, very interesting. Um, th this is an interesting passage, uh, somewhat similar. Uh, 17, 24. Uh, when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into, and it's interesting that Peter immediately said yes. So that, that tells you something about. Well, what, how Peter perceived Jesus' thinking. Um, yes, absolutely, he pays it. So he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When people said from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. Now that's, a, that, that's an interesting statement right there. Because um, ultimately, the, the ultimate king is who? God. And um, Jesus is the son of God, and the disciples are brothers, uh, considered brothers of Jesus. And so even though they are under Gentile authority, Jesus makes this point that ultimately we're exempt. However, verse 27, he says, however, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea, throw in a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Um, so it's interesting that Jesus says, so we don't offend them. Let's go ahead and pay it. 
and, to, and even causes a miracle in order for them to, to be able to, to, to pay that tax. Um, so in order to not offend, and, and this is, um, I think this is good for us to contemplate because um, we sometimes make major issues out of things that are not major issues. Um, we take offense over things that we shouldn't be taking offense over. Um, we end up offending non-believers over things that really is not worth offending them over. And so let me, let me give you an example. I mean, you know, we can, we can make, for instance, politics a major issue with non-believers and, and drive a deep divide between us and, and non-believers over the differences of our political opinions. Um, but is that really what matters? No. Um, if you're going to offend a non-believer, offend them with the pure presentation of the gospel. You know, let the gospel be the reason why they, they find uh, what they find offensive. Don't let it be your behavior towards them. Don't let it be uh, minor issues which are ultimately not important. Um, this is why I, you know, I, I, in my past I was very much apolitical. I didn't want to be involved at all in what was going on in politics. I just said, hey, I just want to follow God. Everything else is kind of a distraction. That was kind of my mindset. I, I, I've, I've morphed from that position a little bit. Um, but, uh, but I think there's still validity to... Um, considering the fact that um, we can drive divisions between us and non-believers over things that really are of no spiritual value, right? Now, in the case of, for instance, um, abortion, um, I think it's worth uh, making our voices heard to defend those who cannot defend themselves, um, to, to defend innocent lives who are created in the image of God. Um, it's worth standing up, even if they think I'm a fool, even they think, uh, you know, they think science uh, argues against me and, you know, they come up with um, whatever arguments they have. Um, I have no problem standing up and saying, no, we must defend innocent life. Um, you know, I have no problem with, uh, with saying that, um, that, that marriage is between a man and a woman. Okay, marriage is, is an institution created by God in the Bible. Um, if people want to follow their same-sex attraction and make lifelong partners of people, look, that's, I'm not trying to stop that. You know, I'm not trying to say that there should be laws against that. Just, just don't call it marriage because marriage is, is, a, is a biblical institution of, uh, of man and woman. Um, it's the idea of a man and a woman starting a family and, and being able to uh, procreate, have children, and, uh, and, and multiply and, and those kinds of things. So, um, so there, there are some, um, you know, those are the kinds of things. It requires a lot of thought when you're going to engage um, in political issues. What kind of political issues are you engaging in and why are you engaging in it? And I think those are also opportunities for us to show that the Word of God means something to us, um, that, that we do believe the Word of God is true. Um, and, and when it comes to especially defending innocent lives, we will stand up and defend innocent lives. When it comes to, de um, to defending the sanctity of, of things like marriage, you know, we will uh, make our voices known. You know? But we're not looking to harm people. You know, so, I mean, often what's, um, what the accusation that's lobbied at us is that we're um, homophobic um, or, or that we're trying to cause harm or something like that. And I've had to um, clarify to people on, on numerous occasions, look, I, I don't want any harm to come to anyone, um, even someone who's, you know, part of the LGBTQ, homosexual, whatever it may be. I'm not looking to harm anyone. I'm just looking to defend what is biblical truth. Um, and, uh, and God is ultimately my king. God is my authority. And so what I believe is based upon that. Because what's happening now in, in the world is that, you know, we, that, that this movement on the left that's looking to redefine anything, everything. For instance, all these sex education laws are being pushed down um, to the schools. Many of you know about that. Um, this is essentially them trying to indoctrinate us away from what we believe is true in the Bible. You know, so it's, it's no longer, you know, while they will paint a narrative of us trying to force them, what's really happening is them forcing us, you know. And so for, for that, I will go ahead and stand my ground and say, this is what is true, and you're not going to get me to compromise on that. 
You know, and there is going to be people that's going to want to persecute churches who refuse to marry same-sex couples, right? Um, that there's already been people that have tried to get bills passed for that. Um, and so that's, um, I, and I don't think that's going to be too far into the future. That, that day could be coming very soon. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, th these are things that require thought in terms of, of, of where you draw that line. Okay. Yes, With Karen. That in mind, then, do you believe that we have a, an obligation then to teach our children, even in a, a class uh, setting, uh, why we do not believe in, in this homosexual movement yeah. and all that? <clears throat> they have the knowledge of that, which would be contrary to what the schools are teaching. But you think we have yeah. an obligation yeah. to teach it so they have, yeah. they're smart about it? I think one of the most difficult uh, positions to be in right now is um, is a believer who is a school teacher in the public school system. Yes. Um, you are dealing with some very, very difficult Christian ethics issues um, because we're being told to teach that which we know is contrary. Um, and at the, you know, and, uh, and on one hand, we want to submit to our governing authorities. And on the other hand, we want to hold firm to um, what's in what's in scripture and I remember talking to Linda Mayhew about this um I, you know I, I don't know if it was last Sunday or maybe a couple of Sundays ago where Linda you know she's got the textbook and she knows which parts of the textbook teaches what she doesn't want to be taught and she's got the power to say you know what that's optional we don't need to read that you're not going to be tested on that yeah, yeah and you, you just come up with this kind of mindset of like you know what this is just not going to come into my classroom and if they want to come and persecute me over it then do it right um and and I like that I, I like that uh, approach to it um, that, uh, you know, you, you know what, what they're asking as governing authorities, but in the classroom, I'm going to trust in the sovereignty of God, um, that he's going to bless what I'm going to do. And, you know, you, you don't go all out and, and just tell the kids that everything that they're being taught is, um, you, you know, evil or whatnot. I mean, you know, you, you have to honor your professionalism, your, your position as a teacher. Um, and I've, I've met teachers, um, you know, who teach like philosophy courses, right? And, and they'll encourage the Bible as, as one of those sources that they can go to to, to kind of, um, uh, you know, get a point of view on, on uh, the meaning of life. Um, and uh, they'll, they'll even, um, you know, as, as they have the class uh, going through various kinds of texts, um, they'll include the Bible and look at like Proverbs or Psalms and, and include that as part of the discussion. Um, so that's a way of just, you know, making sure that the Word of God is part of the discussion without looking like you're indoctrinating students. Because you know, the word of God is not going to return void, right? So even in that kind of setting, the word of God can accomplish its purpose. Or if you're a science teacher and you're, you're teaching, you're being told to teach evolution, I think you can teach that and say this is what um, evolutionists believe without saying that you believe it yourself. Right. It, it is a theory. And, and you can say with 100% um, um, certitude that is a, an unproven theory that will never be proven. Um, it's, it's constant. Evolution is constantly evolving itself, Right. That, that, that's right. That's right. And, and I, I would point that out, too. Yeah. You know what? There's a lot of evolutionists that disagree with each other. And I would say, uh, by the way, the traditional belief um, in the Bible, that hasn't changed. You know, the Bible doesn't change. It has always said seven days. Right. Um, so I, I, I would have no problem saying that. You know, so I, I think there's. Yeah, it's it, it's a difficult question. And I think um, it requires a lot of thought to to consider how you can navigate those laws while still maintaining true to God. Uh, but you know what? If someone comes and says, "You must teach this," you must throw that. Uh, you know, you must throw that biblical thinking out. Then you know that might be the time where you say, "Well, th this is not where I'm going to work anymore," and uh, you know, trust God to take you elsewhere. Uh, but I do like the approach that I I've heard from um, so a lot of Christian teachers um, in the system now. But yeah, it is it is it is getting bad, and um, there are yeah. 
I was gonna say the thing about quitting is the children. Yeah. They, they're, they're, yeah, and that's that's the flip side of that. Benefit. Right, right, and, and um, you got to consider that too, because if you leave, recognize someone else is going to fill your spot and be teaching those children, mm-hmm. and uh, and you won't have the opportunity to have the impact upon them that you know you would like. Um, so that's uh, that you know that's something to consider as well. I, and I know there are um, I, I have um, fellow. Um, pastor friends, uh, people that have gone to my seminary who believe that uh, we absolutely should not be sending our children to public school. And, and I think um, the more and more we move forward, uh, the, the more of a good argument can be made for that um, because of all that's, um, that's happening. But, you know, just for a lot of people, it's just not a practical solution. And I would say if you have to send your children to public school, make sure that you sit down with them and help them understand um, what is the biblical worldview versus what is, you know, the unbiblical worldview. And what they're going to be taught um, is a lot of um, is a lot of uh, ideas that um, are specifically aimed at um, taking God off the throne. Yeah. Um, when we were at the Awana conference before Awana started, it yeah. was kind of interesting. He was a speaker. He was also a pastor, and he was talking about the first um, five to eight years being really crucial yeah. in understanding. God's word as fact and as truth yeah, yeah. and all that. Yeah. And then <clears throat> being able for so that the students have or their children have that foundation yeah. of truth. Right. And they're able to face yeah. the rest of the world. Right. And they're able to ask those questions later on and have someone they can come back to and talk to. Yeah. You know, right. in the home, in key figures, you know, that in their lives. Yeah, yeah. That can answer those questions. Yep, yep. Where, you know, at the school, they're not being given answers. They're just being thrown data. Right, right. You know, yeah. And they can navigate through that mm-hmm. with wisdom. Um, you know, and I also remember another thing growing up is going through the Proverbs. Every yeah. one Proverb a day. Yeah. Every, year after year after year after year. We got to a point where it was annoying. Yeah. But at the same time, so many times when I navigate through life, First thing that comes back to me is, uh, is the proverb. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the blessing. And, and um, Sarah's point is that the first five to eight years are highly formulative in, in a child's life um, in terms of what they understand to be truth and at least understanding a Christian worldview, even if they haven't yet um, gotten old enough to be able to confess that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. And, and I think that's um, that really is uh, the parenting responsibility that we have for our children is to, as much as possible, help them to understand the biblical worldview. Recognizing that understanding the biblical worldview doesn't mean that they're saved. Um, but at least, as they're, um, as they're being exposed to a lot of um, false ideologies and, and wrong worldviews, um, they have a, a basis of Christian thinking that they can compare it to. And, uh, and, and when they start to um, get to certain um, stages of their life uh, where they um, really start to, where they're really ready to, to question the, the meaning of life and their spiritual disposition and whatnot, um, they, they have a lot of what they have learned as, as children to, to come back to them. And it's amazing how often, um, you know, they'll memorize, you know, we have verses like this written on the board, but they'll memorize verses like this and not really fully understand or appreciate what it means. But because they've memorized it much later in life, they'll recite it back and suddenly they're like, I get it, you know, and it's like a light bulb. It just, it just clicks, um, you know, and at the same time, uh, you know, the, the power of God is that, um, you know, for me, I did not grow up with any kind of Christian worldview. 
you know, and so so God can also um, turn someone who has, uh, you know, and I, I didn't grow up in this environment, um, but, you know, God can, can turn anyone um, with, with any kind of background. But for us as parents, I think we do need to... Uh, to take very seriously that that responsibility to try to make sure our, our children understand what the biblical worldview is. And, and, you know, when I say biblical worldview, everyone has a worldview. Okay? Everyone has a world. Everyone has a basis of what is truth. And what happens um, today, and, and part of that sex education laws, they were talking about how uh, anyone who denies two genders, uh, anyone in a religious institution that denies two genders is guilty of spiritual abuse. Um, that's what they're teaching. And... Part of those formulative years, they want to be able to teach these children as young as possible that so that when they're exposed to a church that says that, they immediately think spiritual abuse. That's the first thought that come to their mind so that they, they shut down that, that school down in, in their mind. Uh, as a, they, they shut the church down in terms of um, the, those views. And, um, but if we prep a child ahead of time and say, you know what? This is God's word. This is the truth. And this is, you know, and the fact is we're living in a world that hates God. And if we live in a world that hates God, then recognize they will do everything they can to take God off the throne. So anytime you see a disagreement from people against the Bible, recognize that they are taking, trying to take God off the throne. So at least they have that possibility in their mind and can start to um, weigh out what they hear against what they, they have been taught. Um, so, yeah, but that, it, it is getting, um, getting a lot harder. And I think the quote from – and I want to say the, the quote I saw that night was from – Abraham Lincoln, where he said, if you really want to change a country, go through, go through the children, go through the school system and start changing the country through the, the school system. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. So that, that's unfortunately absolutely what's happening. Now, there is a book that I absolutely love going to that, um, that I think really, really puts all of this, um, into perspective. And that's the book of first Peter, um, first Peter, let's go to first Peter. And what's marvelous about First Peter um, is when we think about the context, and this is where the context makes it so powerful, right? I mean, well, what's the context of First Peter? What's happening to Christians at the time of First Peter? Uh, who knows? Who knows? What, what's that? Well, actually, and, and what, what was happening, um, Peter was um, likely writing from Rome, and this was during the time of Nero. Um, Nero, if you remember, there was a big fire that broke out in Rome. And uh, this fire, it, it burned a, a large portion of the neighborhoods um, in, uh, in Rome. And uh, Nero, unwisely, instead of rebuilding those houses and those neighborhoods, he basically expanded his palace to cover those areas that had burned down. And so, of course, the people, when they saw that, they started thinking it was Nero that started those fires because he just wanted to expand his palace grounds. He just wanted to expand his own uh, personal property. And so Nero... Um, after seeing um, the, the rise of those accusations, he needed a scapegoat. Um, now, historically, um, I, we don't have reason to believe that Nero actually started those fires, um, but he needed a scapegoat, and the easiest scapegoat to him were Christians. And, and that's, when, um, that, that's when persecution in Rome really started to um, intensify against Christians. Uh, Christians were being impaled. They were being, um, they were being killed in public. Um, they're, you know, they're being hung and all those kinds of things. They're basically being made into a display for the people. Um, and so Peter is now writing to people who are outside of Rome who are concerned because you know, these, these areas outside of Rome still fall under the Roman Empire. And they're concerned that that persecution is going to make its way um, outwards. Um, to, uh, to, to believers who, who are outside. And so when we consider that we have um, a Roman emperor who is actively killing believers in God, 
who are actively killing Christians, falsely accusing them for something that they did not commit. I mean, if there was ever a reason to disobey the government and turn against them, you would think that would be the reason. Okay, they are killing us. They're falsely accusing us. Now is the time that we turn against them. Or now is the time that we start to defend ourselves. Now is the time that we in, engage in, in warfare against them. You know, but that's, you know, that's not what, what Peter does. I mean, look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, chapter 2 and starting in verse 1. First Peter chapter 2. You know, and by the way, I skipped chapter 1, but chapter 1 starts off in a very similar way to the book of Ephesians, where Peter is lifting up praise to God for salvation to us. Uh, you know, that we have an inheritance that's undefiled, unfading, and, and reserved in heaven for you. Um, you know, so it's amazing how, you know, if you're Peter and you're trying to write to a bunch of people who are worried about persecution, what would you say? You know, Peter doesn't actually try to address their circumstances. He instead um, addresses it by telling them to look towards God and give praise to God for his salvation of us. You know, that we have uh, an inheritance awaiting for us. And even, even give praise to God for the trials that you are facing. Because those trials will produce a purity of faith um, that, that's going to be glorifying to God. That's what chapter 1 is all about. And then when you get to chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says this, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. This is very interesting. If you look at each one of these words, all malice. Malice is, um, is ill will, right? It's, it's bad feelings. Um, towards uh, towards someone, you know, and uh, but you know, you look at this. He he lists off five things. I think malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Three of the five he puts all in front of it. All malice, all deceit, and he says all slander, and then the hypocrisy and envy. He doesn't put that all in front of. Um, why all malice? Um, because I, I think when, when I'm looking at this, um, we as Christians we sometimes find ways to justify malice against people that do evil things. Like, yeah, we, we don't want ill will towards people unless they have ill will against us. Then it's okay. You know, I think Peter here is saying, no, put, put aside all of it. There is no justifiable malice. All deceit. You know, what is deceit? Deceit is um, doing something dishonest, right? Saying that you're going to do one thing, do another. Um, and, uh, and sometimes Christians will justify doing that in circumstances like this. Hey, the government is against us. Um, if there is a, a time where it's okay to be deceitful, now is the time to be, a, be deceitful. No, I mean, Peter says put aside all deceit. Um, hypocrisy and envy. So hypocrisy, don't say one thing and do another. Envy, you know, as they look around, there are, you know, it's only the Christians that are being persecuted in Rome. You know, it's easy, so it's easy to actually be envious of those who are not being persecuted. It's easy to be envious of those who are, you know, who are not suffering this kind of shame. And, and this reminds us a little bit of the book of Hebrews, right? Because Hebrews, the, the Jews were being challenged, the Jewish um, uh, Christians were, were being challenged to forsake their faith because of persecution, um, and so it's easy to be envious of those who are not facing persecution. You know, and Peter's saying, don't do that either. Don't, don't envy other people's uh, situation. And then all slander. He says all slander. Because once again, I, I think Christians, you know, slander is, is evil. But um, we'll find excuses for slander if we think the person deserves it, right? So slander saying, um, you know, uh, just saying um, bad things about someone, especially things that, uh, that, that may be untrue. Um, so put aside all of it. In verse two, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the world of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So even in this time, even as persecution is arising, you continue feeding upon the word of God. You continue growing as as a believer. Um, and then when we go on further down, look at verse thirteen, same chapter, verse thirteen, chapter two, verse thirteen. 
Peter says what Paul said in Romans 13. So verse 13, he says this, and, and this is, uh, he's going to add a little something extra that, that is amazing. Um, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Okay, he doesn't say every except those who are persecuting Christians. He didn't say every except those who hate you and, and are coming for you. He's saying submit to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God. Verse 15, for such is the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is? Here, Peter gives us the will of God. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And verse 16 Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. That is a powerful statement. We have freedom in Christ. We are absolutely free, right? The truth shall set you free. We know that those of us who have been saved by God have a freedom that those who do not know God will never have. And Peter here is saying, but don't use your freedom as an excuse for covering up sin, as for, for sin or covering up of sin, but rather... You know, voluntarily make yourself slaves of God. And then verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And who would have been the king at that time? Nero. Yeah. Honor Nero, even the one who is impaling Christians and falsely accusing him. You continue to honor him. Um, and, and not only that, go look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13. You know, he says this. Um, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Okay, as Christians, we should always be zealous for what is good. We should be zealous for uh, what is right, what is true. You know, we should be zealous for living out our testimony, for being honest with the people that we work with, you know, for being good citizens, for obeying the laws. We should be zealous for what is good. And, and generally speaking, this is a general truth that if you are zealous for what is good, there is no government, you know, on the planet that's going to want to persecute you. But you, we know that there are exceptions, and that's what's happening in Rome. But verse 14 says, But even, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, so if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are what? Blessed blessed. This is, a, this is here. Here's the thing. So Peter says, if you are zealous for doing what is good, no one's going to harm you. But if they do harm you, you're blessed. You know what that's called? That's called a win-win situation. Right? This is a win-win situation. Look, if you are zealous for what is good, generally speaking, they're not going to do anything to you. But even if they do something to you for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed by God. You are blessed by God. And remember, the, the start of this um, book in chapter 1, once again, started, started with the idea that, you know, blessed be the God, our, uh, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, who has given us salvation and uh, who has given us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, um, unfading, and, and being protected in heaven by faith, um, waiting for that last time when we're going to be there. Um, so this is a win-win situation. And then verse 14, he says, at the end of verse 14, he says, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. So I think this is where he starts to acknowledge what's going on. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but rather do this. Verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now, you know that word for sanctify. It's the same word for holy. Make holy the name of the Lord. Make holy the name of Christ in your hearts. And you know what? Peter doesn't stop there because he doesn't just say this and leave us, you know, trying to guess what that means. 
What does it mean to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts? Well, he goes on, verse 15, he says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness, there's that word again, gentleness, we saw that this morning, with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And the idea is that they will be put to shame, maybe not in this life, but they will be put to shame in the day of judgment. They will ultimately be put to shame when they stand before God. But but here's the thing, you sanctifying Christ the Lord. I mean, I think all of us would want to say, yeah, we want, we want to honor Jesus Christ is holy in our hearts. Well, how do we do that? In this case, we do that by always being ready to give an account for the hope that is in you. Now, here's the thing. For you to be ready to give an account for the hope that is in you, what do people have to be able to see in you? They have to be able to see Christ, but they have to be able to see hope, right? I mean, if they're going to ask you to give an account of hope, the assumption is that they see hope, right? So even in, and especially in times of persecution, you know, to, to people that, that are persecuting others, especially, you know, Christians. I mean, the, the hope that someone will have in Christ, even in these situations, is not going to make sense to them. Like, I don't get it. Why are you so, you know, why are you so zealous for good? Why are you so hopeful? Why are you so much praising God when, when you know, you're being persecuted, when people that believe what you believe are being persecuted? You know, the, the questions that can come up, and those are opportunities to be able to share the eternal truth of the gospel and say, this is why I have hope. This is why, you know, I can still rejoice. This is why I can be zealous for doing what is good, because ultimately, my ultimate authority is God, and I know what God is going to provide us. I know the promises that God has for us. You know, and that's, that's a great opportunity to, to bring the gospel. And then, you know, and then Peter goes on to say that, you know, keep a good conscience, verse 16, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, and, you know, we, we as Christians, we're going to be slandered. You know, we're, we're going to be slandered, right? I mean, it's like, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, Chick-fil-A, which was one of my favorite uh, restaurants, you know, because they held firm, you know, they compromised recently. Yeah, you guys know about that? Um, so so they, they compromised. But up until then, you know, there was a lot of people saying a lot of slanderous things about Chick-fil-A that, that weren't true. You know, Chick-fil-A is um, homophobic. Chick-fil-A is, is haters of these kinds of people and those kinds of people. No, they're not. You know, they, they just stand on biblical values. You know, but, um, I, I, you know, I, I had so much respect for them because they stood firm. And, you know, and as a result, what was interesting was that they became the most profitable fan fast food rest, uh, franchise in America. So it's puzzling to me that they would uh, compromise. But is that right? Yeah, it could be. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and um, you know, I'm not in their position. I don't, you know, they could be getting death threats, you know, and, and this might be a way of, you know, kind of curtailing that and, and trying to, you know, maybe at that point they're not worried about profits, but they're just worried about safety um, or, you know, the public view of them. I, I, I don't know what's going on there, but but it was disappointing that um, that they decided to stop supporting certain uh, Christian nonprofit organizations and, you know, and, and actually I think they made a statement even to, to saying they support um, LGBTQ or or something like that. So it's it's um, it's unfortunate. But, you know, when we hold firm, we can be sure that even the things in which we are slandered, um, those who slander us will be put to shame in due time. You know, so we, we just uh, we just want people to stand firm. And we look forward to that day where we hear from the Lord Jesus Christ, well done, good and faithful servant, right? And the idea of faithful, you know, is that we would persevere. I and mean, we, we talked about this morning about the one another's and, and uh, being patient, being long-suffering. But, you know, long-suffering is not just towards one another within the church, but long-suffering is, is towards the conditions of this world. You know, long-suffering, um, we are, Jesus says we are to be light and salt upon the earth. 
Um, we know that this country is getting darker and darker in their understanding. Um, and uh, the darker it gets, the more they ridicule um, Bible beliefs, um, Christian values. Um, but as long as we stand, uh, stand for it, that, that serves as um, light and salt, even if they reject it. And so we, uh, we, we just trust in the Lord in that. But First Peter is such a, such a powerful book because um, all of this is, you know, Peter telling the, the, the Christians to maintain your testimony, maintain your testimony, continue to trust in God. And even if you're persecuted, don't worry, you are blessed. You are blessed. And uh, when we look back at history, I think history affirms this. Um, the, um, the, the, the Israelites, um, they, you know, they battled back against the uh, Roman government when the Roman government started to persecute um, Jews. Um, and it uh, culminated in the Battle of Masada um, sometime around 70 AD, um, right around the time of the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple, give or take a few years. Um, they, they battled back and they lost at, uh, at a place called Masada. Um, but in those historical accounts of what happened, there is no historical accounts of Christians fighting back. Christians, uh, the Jews fought back, the Christians didn't. And, um, and, and there's a lot of reason to believe that not only was the Spirit of God working within Christians, but the Spirit of God was using letters like Peter um, to instruct them what's the proper way to respond. Yeah, Sarah. There's also certain records that show that the Christians, the believers, heeded the warnings in First Peter. Yeah, that's right. In Matthew 24, Jesus mm-hmm. himself, that when Jerusalem was surrounded, yeah. that they were to flee. They yeah. were not to come back and get things, but they were just to flee mm-hmm. so that the Christians... We're not in that position yeah. at that point, mm. at that particular point in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, interesting. Um, what's that? Can you repeat that? Oh, um, she was um, saying that Matthew 24, uh, Matthew 24, the prophecies of Matthew 24, um, actually had Christians in a position that they wouldn't be where the Jews would be, where they would flee and all that. Um, so there, there was, I think you're saying there's God's sovereign hand in all that uh, when persecution was coming upon the Jews, that Christians were to some extent uh, spared from that. They were not in, to, in some of those areas. Um, but they also just didn't fight back. You know? So I mean, even as Nero was, was um, initiating a persecution of the Christians, and, and persecution would go on and off really um, constantly kind of until Constantine um, in the uh, early 4th century. So for, for really centuries, um, persecution against Christians were, was pretty intense, which is why we don't have as, um, as much writings from um, Christians during the first uh, three centuries, you know, until you get to that 4th century when Constantine finally provides some safety um, for Christians, and then you get all this rich writing from, from believers uh, from that 4th century uh, with regards to theology and whatnot. So, um, yeah, there, there's, um, there, there's a lot to be, be said here, but... You know, we ultimately trust in the Lord Jesus Christ no matter how difficult things get. And we trust that we will be blessed. And that's something that even the Jews, even in their faith in God, uh, however their faith was, and we realize that if they don't recognize Jesus Christ, then they don't truly recognize God the Father. But um, even their form of faith would not, uh, would not allow them to hold up to that. They, they ended up fighting back. They ended up getting defeated. And um, they didn't, uh, you know, they weren't protected in the same way Christians were. So... Um, any other comments or questions at this time? Any other thoughts? Let's see if there's any other um, passages I wanted to be able to cover. First uh, Thessalonians 4, and this will be the last one. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, um, verses 9 through 12. 
1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. And as I mentioned, you know, some Christians really believe that it's our duty to get politically involved, to be social activists, to, you know, try to um, bring about change in society and whatnot. Um, I would disagree with that. I, I believe that the world, um, Jesus even told us the world will continue to get worse and worse and worse until he returns. Um, and, and so that's, that's going to be a trend that continues. And so our focus should be on the Great Commission, which is making disciples, bringing the, the, the gospel, evangelizing, and, uh, and helping to, to teach others to obey Christ. Um, but I, I think First Thessalonians 4 in, in some way supports uh, this idea that we're not to, not to um, you know, kind of muddy our lives with, with uh, political activism or social activism. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9 um, Paul says this, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So there's, once again, a, a reminder for us to love one another. Um, verse 10, For indeed you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And then look at this, verse 11, And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. Um, so the idea here um, is that Paul is encouraging them to um, be good stewards, essentially, uh, of their lives. Um, you, you know, work with your own hands, or be able to earn your own kind of living. Um, and make it so that you're not dependent, and especially you're not dependent upon outsiders. You're not dependent upon non-believers. You know, and, um, you know, you, you also want to uh, make sure that we, you know, we, have, we want to have a good testimony. I mean, for, to unbelievers, we want to be able to show that, hey, we're hard workers. We're responsible citizens. You know, we don't, uh, you know, we don't um, cause a ruckus in society. We're, we're not people that, you know, um, are, are, you know, rioting in the streets or stirring up riots in the streets, right? Or, or you know, holding up um, signs or banners trying to, um, to, to kind of encourage a level of disobedience against our, our government. Um, so I, I think here is very much the opposite. Paul is saying, look, try to lead a quiet life. Quiet, meaning not that you're not heard, but quiet in the sense that you're, you're, not, you're not causing this kind of ruckus within society. Yes, Bob? And how would you relate that to um, um, uh, activities that are, uh, you know, are against abortion? Yeah. People march against abortion. They, they picket Planned Parenthood yeah, yeah, and, and um, that, that's a good question. Uh, that is a good question. And, um, and, and I think that um, there are good ways to do it and there are bad ways to do it. Um, so I, I've heard a lot of examples. Um, so the, the question was, um, you know, what do we do about those who picket Planned Parenthood, the, those, those who stand um, against abortion? Yeah, what what uh, what do we do about um, um, some of those uh, some of those activities? You know, I I've, I mean I've heard stories of, of people they go out and they'll throw blood on people. You know, that are trying to go into Planned Parenthood. I, I don't think that's necessary. There are people that will actually be violent um, or, or actually block the entrance and prevent them from going inside. No, that's you know we're not we're not trying to use physical force to um, to, to force people to do what is right. Um, now, I think there is a responsible way to do that where we can, we can do that without, um, without inciting violence. So we can do that in a way where we're trying to bring the truth, right? So I think there are responsible ways that, uh, that we can do that. Uh, we, we certainly just don't want to, um, you know, start a riot. Uh, you know, we don't want to encourage a riot. We don't want to, you know, cause violence to people. We certainly just want um, people to understand what the, what the truth is. Um, so I, I would say in those cases, and in the case of, you know, um, uh, of abortion, that's an example of us um, standing up for those who can't stand up for themselves, right? Defending the, the those who are being defenseless, you know, trying to 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 make that that kind of case. 
but you know, on the other hand, you get people, you get organizations like Antifa, right? Um, Antifa, if you ever see the, the video footage of what Antifa is doing out there, Antifa, it's called Antifa because it's called anti-fascist, but um, ironically enough, they're actually more fascist than they are anti-fascist. And Antifa, they're the ones that wear these black masks. You know, they go to places and, and they will start violence. I mean, they will, they will uh, initiate violence against those who disagree with them. You know, so for us, that, that should not be our testimony. That, hey, we disagree, um, but we're not going to hurt you just because we disagree. We just simply want our voices to be heard. We, we just want you to hear, hear the truth. Whereas the other side, what they're actively trying to do is trying to shut you down. You know, that's, that's really the, the, the spirit of our age, trying to silence those who are in disagreement with, with kind of the, the leftist uh, position. You know, and, um, and, and, you know, if you study the history of, of liberalism, you know, conservative, you know, conservatives, we, we say conservatives because we're trying to conserve traditional values, right? Um, and, and conservatives um, usually are just trying to hold to a position they believe is true, whereas progressives and liberals are trying to drift away from it, um, and they're always drifting. So, you know, uh, the, the mistake that we've made in the past is that we have uh, made some compromises, say, okay, well, let's meet in the middle, and come to an agreement, and, and we meet in the middle, and, uh, and they're satisfied with it for the time being, but then in the future, they're going to try to pull it further and further left, right? And we, we've seen that happen with the LGBTQ movement. You know, we've seen that happen with all this gender-fluid uh, discussion. You know, I think um, concessions have been made, and now we're at a point where, you know, it's, it's now turning into um, kind of a, a fascist uh, imposition of these uh, beliefs upon us uh, in society. So, um, any other comments or, or questions? Yes. Abortion thing. I've heard, like on Christian radio, some women have been saved from it, but the uh, the people that were standing outside the, um, the abortion place, yeah. they've been able to. They care, so yeah. they gently yeah. say, talk to them, and that's a good thing. And yeah. Saved. Yeah. Uh, a lot of mourning for women. Right. When I mean weeping. Yeah. Morning. Um from doing what they were going to do, and they've been very thankful for that. Yeah. So it's, I think it's how you do it. We're, very much we so. see that other side very much so. mean. Very much and, so. But we love, you know, we care about them. Amen. So I think it's a good thing. I think that, that is an excellent point. So, I mean, the, the point that Karen just made is that um, there's a lot of women that have been saved out of this, and uh, and, and in their testimony, they're remembering the, the compassion um, of those who actually minister to them. You know, there. You know, obviously, we we have seen um, many um, so-called Christians out there that um, are really kind of Bible thumpers. You know, they're just looking to condemn everyone and beat everyone over the head with uh, with scriptures. And and I don't I don't condone that. Um, I, I believe that scripture needs to be part of our thinking. It needs to be part of our explanation. But there's a way to do it uh, where we show that we we care that um, that we love them. Um, and and no, that that's very much true. And I you know when we think about this morning's message. You know, how um, Paul, you know, wants us to be gentle. He, he wants us to be patient. He wants us to be long-suffering. You know, these are the characteristics that really should characterize us in just about every situation, even with non-believers. Um, the emphasis there was upon um, our unity within the church, but really that characteristic shouldn't just stop with the, with the church. It should extend onto non-believers as well. And so there's a way that we can sit down with uh, those who are against us, but show that we care. Um, now, they may not receive it that way, they might still reject you and call you a hater and, and all that kinds of stuff. And, you know, if they do so, well, you know, it's like what Peter said, um, those who slander you, you know, at, at the proper time, they're going to be put to shame, you know, and we, we trust that. But, no, that is an excellent point. It is so crucial for us to, 
um, be loving and kind and compassionate in everything that we do. And that section that we're going through in Ephesians right now, Paul will go on to talk about speaking the truth in love. Um, we do that with each other, but we should also do that with unbelievers. We speak the truth in love. We don't compromise from the truth, but there's a way to do it where people can feel that we do really care. And we're not simply there to just prove that we're right. We're not here to win an argument, right? Um, winning an argument should not be our goal. Um, it's winning souls. Um, that, that should be our goal. You know, and, uh, and, and I know, and Maureen. I think it's very easy in this era of polarized opinion yeah. for um, Christians to get carried away with this uh, hateful rhetoric. Yeah. And my question to people uh, who are of that um, mindset is, have you spent as much time praying for these people yeah. as you have? Well criticizing them. Wow, wow. We, uh, we forget that prayer is a powerful tool. It is. It, it brings is. people. Um, it is. That's how we can show our love and our gentleness it is. and our caring. Pray for these people who Amen. are doing these awful things uh, politically yeah. in the judicial system. Uh, uh, these people uh, really need to have the Holy yeah. Spirit deal with them. And he is far more powerful than we could ever be. So we really need to pray for them. Um, I'm even feeling convicted just by your statement. All right. So, I mean, I mean, what Maureen is saying, you know, for those who engage in this kind of rhetoric, the question is, do you spend as much time praying um, as you do criticizing and engaging this hateful rhetoric? Um, and and that, that's a convicting question. You know, we really should be spending a lot of time in prayer. Um, more time in prayer than, than in actually engaging in kind of the polemics and, and the in the debate. Yeah, Sarah. I was um, remembering going back to a proverb that says that the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord and he he's the one that turns it. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so ultimately, prayer, you know. That's right. And understanding that God holds the king's heart in his hands. Yeah, and yeah. He's the one that's going to turn the ship. Yeah, and that's once again the emphasis upon God's sovereignty over our rulership and, uh, and that God is ultimately in control. I mean, it's just like uh, in Isaiah, he had uh, prophesied that uh, Cyrus um, would be the one to release um, Israel back to uh, back back to the Israelites, back to Israel. And, um, and he even referred to Cyrus as his own servant. Right. Um, so, no, that's uh, that's a great point. And Nebuchadnezzar. Right. Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he was turned into a wild beast and went into the woods and then came back. And after he was restored, um, you know, uh, provided some signs that he, he may have actually come to know God um, through that. Um, who knows? We might actually see Nebuchadnezzar up in heaven. Uh, but no, the, the, these are great points. Uh, we need to have a testimony of gentleness, kindness, love, compassion. And we need to be people who are characterized by prayer. Um, there are very, you know, there's a lot of commandments in the Bible. Um, there aren't that many commandments in the Bible that we're told to do without ceasing. Okay, prayer is one of those things that we're told to do without ceasing. Um, being in the word is one of those things that we're told to do constantly. You know, so, I mean, if, if it's emphasized in that way, it must be very important. And the power of God that uh, Paul emphasizes um, is very much connected to the idea that we have access to God um, in, in the same spirit, right, in, in the one spirit. And, and the power of God works within us um, in, um, in prayer and, uh, and, and in those, uh, those kinds of affairs. So, yeah, af ac absolutely um, pray. And, uh, and I haven't talked about fasting when I did that sermon on, on prayer. I didn't talk about fasting. Um, and I'll just say this real quick. Fasting is um, not commanded, but it is assumed. And um, Jesus actually made the point, you know, when he was challenged, uh, why don't your disciples fast? Um, Jesus made it very clear. Well, they don't fast because they're with the Messiah. 
You know, why, why fast? They should be celebrating right now. You know, but when I'm gone and they grieve, then they'll fast. You know, and, and um, these things that grieve us, um, these are the... These are probably the best occasions for us to consider fasting and really going to the Lord and, and praying that the Lord would, would do something, um, would, would turn some hearts, would, would save some people. And, uh, and you know what? Um, we know that the Lord will do that. Uh, he has done that. You know, so we, we want to be a part of that. Any other comments or questions? All right. Well, let's go ahead and close out in prayer and uh, pray over the food and enjoy the rest of the evening.